Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Quacks today on the 4th of November. Remember, Brian. remember the 4th of November. Uh, I think that's tomorrow, right? Oh, it's the 5th. Yeah. yeah, it's the 5th. Okay. He's referring to the bombing, the, the Guy failed Fox. attempt... Of bombing of the par- parliament, correct? Yeah, by Guy Fox. Yeah. Guy Fox Day. It's also my birthday. Oh, tomorrow's yeah. your birthday? Yeah, November 5th. I had no idea. Yeah, I don't Facebook tell didn't tell me. I don't tell people, and I'm not on Facebook, so... That's right, you're That's not. That's why. Uh, so, we have a really interesting show, I think, today. We're going to talk about serotonin, depression, and motivation. We did a show on dopamine. Mm. Some people said it was a pretty awesome show. They said it was dopamine. So it was, it was definitely dope. Uh, so yeah, there was this, uh, this great article from 2018 that I read a couple of weeks ago and it talked about depression. So I thought, you know, let's talk, let's talk about this. <laughs> you know, I'm ready for this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian hasn't been sleeping great. So he's, his mood's a little down. Oh boy. I'm sorry, guys. You're just gonna have to bear with me this week. I'm going to try to get a couple fart jokes in here and there, but for the most part, I'm just going to be an active listener. You love fart jokes. Who doesn't? (laughs) Oh, my mom. Yeah. So, and I also think, you know, we're going on the podcast, we're going through, we've talked about cortisol last week a little bit. Uh, We've talked about dopamine. I think we're going to talk about every body hormone or neurotransmitter and how they feel subjectively. Good. I, I know when I read studies and they say, you know, this or that substance raises a certain hormone, I think for most people, that's a big question mark, mm-hmm. right? I mean, who cares if it raises serotonin? Is that is that a good thing? Is that bad? Is it a bad? You don't know. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's just dive into serotonin. So serotonin is actually a chemical called 5-hydroxytryptamine or 5-HT. And the different things it does all over the body are too numerous to expand on. Serotonin is one of the most complicated molecules in our body and can have opposite effects depending on what receptors are being targeted and studied. So to sum everything up in a single podcast would be impossible. So just to make a distinguishing thing here in the beginning, you said 5-HT, which that's that's different than 5-HTP. Yeah, so 5-HTP is the supplement... 5-hydroxytryptophan, uh-huh. and it converts into serotonin. Okay. It converts into 5-hydroxytryptamine. Okay. And the reason why people take it is because it is so close to serotonin, it converts so well. Great. Into okay. It. Make sense? Yep. Cool. So I want to focus mostly on serotonin's role in depression and motivation. But as we'll see, you know, it has effects on gut health, wound healing, just a lot of different processes in the body. Okay. Now, it was discovered in the 1930s, and its discovery was a really big event for health science. Uh, multiple scientists from around the world found it all over the body in a very short amount of time. The intestines, the brains, the lungs. It really revolutionized how we viewed organs and how they work. Mm. At the same time, LSD was also discovered. Mm. So serotonin's discovery, it's all wrapped <laughs> up with like drug culture, uh, dopamine, the development of the medical industrial complex. It's kind of a cool story. Really? If, if you get into it. Yeah. yeah. So Ray Pete, he's a PhD researcher who I, I think I've mentioned him before several times. And he has some great articles on serotonin. And he explains an aspect of its discovery really well. So I'm going to quote from his article. It's called Serotonin Effects in Disease, Aging, and Inflammation. So here we go. 
In the 1930s, Vittorio Erspammer identified an amine in the intestines that caused the intestine to contract. A group in England extracted an amine from serum that caused blood vessels to contract and identified its chemical nature. Later, Erspammer, I'm going to say that name wrong every time, Erspammer showed that the intestinal amine and the vascular amine were chemically the same. Uh, the English group who had identified the substance by extracting tons of beef blood wanted to find sensitive ways to assay it for further studies. Uh, in 1951, they gave a sample to a pharmacologist, John Gadam, who tested its effects on tissues, including blood vessels and rat uteruses. Rat uteruses. Yeah, they were into some some crazy stuff back then. Jeez Louise. So Gadam tested the serotonin in combination with a variety of other drugs, including ergot derivatives that he knew acted on smooth muscles and very soon observed that LSD blocked the effects of serotonin. Since he knew that LSD produced mental effects, he reasoned that the brain might also contain serotonin. And by 1952 was able to demonstrate that it does contain small amounts of it. A couple years later, he suggested that the mental effects of lysergic, so LSD, are due to interference with the normal action of 5-hydroxytryptamine, or Mm. serotonin. At the Rockefeller Institute Institute in New York, Woolley and Shaw also saw the antagonist effects on smooth muscle and drew similar conclusions about the brain. Erspammer showed that LSD was a highly effective antagonist against the antidiuresis caused by serotonin. So from this quote, you know, we can see that these scientists are discovering how serotonin works in the body and in the brain. Uh, Serotonin tends to make things contract or restrict. Uh, Now, in that last sentence, they're saying basically that serotonin made people pee less and LSD made reverse that. Weird. That's that's what diuresis is. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So they're discovering this antagonistic relationship between serotonin and dopamine, which is it's very well established in science today. It's a bit simplistic, but in general, as dopamine goes up, serotonin goes down, mm. and vice versa. And this is important to understand, as we're going to talk about later. Okay. Cool. Now, let's talk a little bit about depression. Now, the earliest account of depression is from the 2nd century B.C., and was usually attributed to demonic possession. What? Yeah, so they they treated him with the old classics of uh, beatings, incarcerations, and starvation. I'll try it. You know, right now, I will try it, because I got some demos running about. Now, later on, Hippocrates upgraded the treatment to bloodletting, exercise, diet, and baths, so that was better. I like the bath aspect of it. (laughs) (laughs) But you kind of get the pattern through history, which is that mental illness is usually treated as some type of uh, supernatural condition and terrible things were done to people in the name of helping them and purging them of possession. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And this is pre-Dr. Kellogg, too, huh? Yes, pre-Dr. Kellogg. Oh, man, he's a whole story. Oh, yeah, we need to do a show on that. Yeah, you should should write up a little bit about it. I will, because I'm fascinated by that guy. Yeah, he's funny. So it isn't until the 1900s that explanations of depression begin to look somewhat familiar. In the 1960s and 70s, a guy named Aaron Beck explained depression as a cognitive theory where people uh, interpret events negatively. Another guy, Martin Seligman, who we'll talk about in a minute, talked about learned helplessness being at the root of a depressed state. And Ray Pete, who I mentioned before, he talks about depression as kind of a state of low cellular energy and metabolism. Then... You know, there's the classic modern theory that your brain just has low serotonin. Although 
Uh, this theory is more and more being shown to be completely wrong, and was it's basically a sales pitch to sell antidepressants. But despite having all these theories about depression, there's still a lot of mystery involved in, in what exactly causes it in each individual. Because depression, it's a very individualized condition. Everyone's a little bit different. There's an interplay between uh, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, glutamate, and a lot of other brain chemicals and body chemicals. So this idea that depression is a disease of low serotonin, it's very simplistic and often wrong. Okay. So before we go any further, I really just want to debunk this idea of the low serotonin theory. And... How I'm going to do that is basically to explain an aspect of the FDA. So if you're if you're going to do a study on a drug, you have to register that study with the FDA. The FDA has this large database with all the studies that have been performed on drugs. After the study is finished, you can then submit your paper to different medical journals in an attempt to get it published. And when your study is published, it often goes through this peer review process and other processes that kind of weed out bad practices and bad studies. And getting your study published, it's, it's kind of like the, a big deal. It's the end goal for many researchers and shows that you are uh, a legit scientist doing scientist-y things, right. right? It's the cap. Yeah. Well, drug companies have funded massive studies on SSRIs to prove their efficacy in fighting depression. But in what I consider one of the largest frauds ever committed on doctors and patients, they only publish studies that show antidepressants were effective and did not publish studies that showed the opposite. Really? Yeah. That seems unethical. Just a little bit. So there was actually a study on these studies. There was a large meta-study, and I've linked it in the show notes if you're interested, but researchers looked at both the studies in published journals and the unpublished studies in the FDA database. So they found that seven, uh, I'm sorry, 31% of the 74 FDA-registered studies on antidepressants were not published. Of those 74 studies, 37 studies showing positive results were published, 22 studies showing negative results were not published, mm-hmm. and 11 studies showing negative results were published in a way that conveyed a positive outcome. Wow. So when you look at just the studies published on antidepressants, it appears like 94% of the evidence is positive with regards to antidepressants, which would support the idea that depression is a disease of low brain serotonin. Like, mm-hmm. hey, we found the answer. But if you include the unpublished studies in the FDA database, that number drops to 51%. Wow. Which means if you look at all the studies that have been done on these things, about half show positive results, half show negative results. Yep. Now, the article on depression that I mentioned at the top of the show, it points this out, and it also points out that in general, 65 to 80% of people who take antidepressants are depressed again within a year. Even on the antidepressants. Correct. Yep. Yeah. So SSRIs, they're just not a very effective antidepressants. It's kind of like flipping a coin. And because of all the interplay in your brain of neurochemicals, you know, sometimes it'll help. Sometimes it does nothing. Sometimes it makes things worse. I've heard that too. Yeah. Now, thankfully, just this year, back in March, the FDA approved a drug for major depression for the first time in decades which when I read that, I was actually pretty surprised. You know, we see all these studies all the time. They're all coming out. But the fact that we're still using the same drugs for depression that we used decades ago, I think that's kind of a bad sign. Yeah. Right? Not a lot of movement in that Not a lot of movement there. Well, this new drug, it's actually an old drug approved for a new purpose, and it is ketamine. 
which is usually an anesthesia drug or a Horse rec- tranquilizer or a recreational drug yes. known as special K. <laughs> Change the cereal forever. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, the trials with special K showed a much better success percentage with something like 70% of people with treatment resistant depression improving. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Pretty interesting, right? That is interesting. Yeah. I always thought that stuff just knocked you out. Not that I'm opposed. Yeah, they came out with this, uh, like, uh, I think it's a nasal spray of it. So you don't have to get, like, an IV. You go to a doctor and they just shoot it up your nose. For humans? For humans. Yeah, man. That's All right. This, I got to look this into treatment. this. <laughs> about to get special K'd up over here. I think you also have to be on an antidepressant. I could be wrong about that, but... Sounds right. There's some hoops you have to jump through. They don't just give you ketamine. And the hoops we're talking about are Fruit Loops. Yeah. That's another dr- uh, cereal-derived drug that they're using. Uh, no, actually, I don't think that's one. Yeah. That's not one. No, it's but not. Let's back up. All right. So what brings the whole story of serotonin together is kind of this concept of learned helplessness, which is a state that was first illuminated in the 1960s and 70s by Dr. Martin Seligman. So this this learned helplessness, this explains kind of everything in a way that's understandable. Because mm-hmm. if, if you're kind of following the story, serotonin is discovered. They're studying it for all these different things. Depression is one of those things that they, they find that it might be useful for. All these studies come out showing it is effective, but those are kind of not true. Mm-hmm. And so SSRIs are kind of a coin flip. But this learned helplessness research that was first illuminated in the 1960s and 70s by Dr. Martin Seligman, it kind of ties everything together. That's incredible. So he did a series of studies on dogs and rats, and eventually humans as well, which would probably not be performed today, but at the time, those (laughs) studies were pretty acceptable. Yeah. So what he did, just to quickly sum up his work, is he put dogs and rats into situations where they would be electrically shocked, but they could avoid that electrical shock by moving or hitting a lever. He compared that group to dogs and rats that were shocked but couldn't do anything about it, meaning they had to just sit there and get electrical shocks. It's called inescapable stress. Oh my gosh. Yes. So he compared escapable stress to inescapable stress. <laughs> That's terrible. It is kind of bad. That's uh, kind of where I am right now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know how those dogs felt. Yeah. So he then took those groups and he put them in a new situation where they all could avoid the electrical shock by doing some task. Mm. And he found that the group, which experienced the inescapable stress in the first go, refused to avoid the electrical shock in the second go where they could avoid it. Why? Because, well, he dubbed this learned helplessness. Okay. It's like they had learned that they could do nothing about the stress that they were getting. Oh, weird. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, they, they learned to be helpless. <laughs> even if something could be done. And there there were similar studies That's done on, on rats a little bit later that were even worse, where they did the same thing. They subject two groups of rats to stress with the same parameters. So one group can stop it, one group can't. Then they placed the rats in a tub of water with no ability to escape, and they would measure how long each group of rats will swim before they succumb and drown. <sighs> It's pretty rough. I it's know. terrible. Yeah, it is. It is terrible. At but least save them or put like a little, res- like, I don't know, life preserver on them so they start going. At least they'll nod <laughs> out and they can pull them out, do a little Heimlich or whatever. <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, they want it to be real. It's like, hey, you're swimming for your life, you know. <laughs> so, and then they want they want to see what. But anyway, oh, they man. find that the group of rats who are subjected to uh, 
to unavoidable stress, they basically give up and drown within minutes. Whereas the rats who could do something about the stress would swim for much longer periods of time, sometimes hours they would swim really? trying to get out of a tub. Yeah. That makes sense though. So they, they repeated these studies on humans with loud sounds, not with swimming, but with, with loud I was like, sounds. What? Get in the pool, everybody. And, <laughs> and they found again that the humans who could do nothing about the stress from the loud sounds would later attempt not attempt to prevent the loud sounds from happening in a new iteration. So this learned helplessness kind of, it's, it's important. So it, it, it's really an adaptive response of the body, which is saying, look, you can't do anything about this stress, so stop fighting it. Stop looking for a way out. Conserve your energy for another day. Mm. It's this adaptive response. And in a way, we can get trapped in that learned helplessness because we apply our helplessness to new situations where it doesn't actually apply. Mm. Now, if every aspect of our life, from our relationships to our job to everything, is a constant stress, we can then start leading a life of learned helplessness, basically. Now, if you remember back Mm. to the dopamine episode, we talked about how dopamine is the desire to move towards that which is rewarding, right? Yes. So it's the drive that propels us towards rewards and away from pain. The promise of a reward. Yes. Now, serotonin and dopamine are antagonistic to each other. Remember, If you remember, meaning you take dopamine, serotonin goes down and vice versa. Yes. So given what we know about learned helplessness, where there is no motivation, and dopamine, which is a high motivator, we can make a connection here, which is that learned helplessness is a state of high serotonin. And once we understand that, we can understand how SSRIs work. So SSRIs are given to you when you're feeling down, anxious, in pain, and they basically tell your brain, hey, you can't do anything about these things. You're helpless to change these problems. And in that moment, you get some relief as your body conserves energy and stops fighting the problems in your life causing depression. That is so cool and crazy and weird. It is. It's very strange. So serotonin puts you into that learned helplessness mindset and your whole body theoretically relaxes as it stops fighting what it cannot fight effectively. Just gives up. It just gives up. So serotonin is not a happy hormone. It's an apathy hormone or amine. It's not even a hormone, but you get it. Yep. It doesn't raise your mood. It kind of puts a floor on your mood so it stops getting so low. And this actually works for some people. I mean, who wouldn't feel better, right? If they had this, you know, few of their biggest problems just go away. I mean, you'd feel a massive sense of relief. Totally. Right? Even if you were still burdened with some of those problems, it sounds like there's some drop-off there. And it's not like you're happy. You're just like relieved to not be dealing with some of the problems oh and that can oh in itself just the thought of that oh it sounds so nice (laughs) (laughs) you could probably also remember uh we talked about in the dopamine episode that testosterone and dopamine have this connection and that they enhance the action of the other do you remember that yes i do now if you look at depression and anxiety rates in america you can see the proof of this as more women take antidepressants than men Men have these higher levels of dopamine for higher testosterone, and so they're less likely to get into a state of learned helplessness. Yep. And therefore, they don't take as many antidepressants as women. Now, you may also remember from the dopamine episode that dopamine 
opens up your perception. Remember we talked about that? Uh, when I was testing out that dopamine agonist, I kind of felt like I could see all the details happening all at once. I could remember my girlfriend's shoelace colors. I and, know. I really wanted to try it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the dopamine agonist I was taking, it was similar in some respects to LSD. And as, as Ray Pete mentioned earlier, LSD is a dopamine agonist and a serotonin antagonist, meaning it, it ups dopamine, lowers serotonin. So Aldous Huxley, the famous writer, he was one of the first people to really think about LSD. And he theorized that basically our brains limit our perception of reality. So we are not flooded with sensory overload. And so we take when we take something like LSD, it, it takes away that limitation and we get, you know, reality in its unfiltered flow. Okay. So from this, we get the idea around serotonin and dopamine and their influence on our perception meaning dopamine opens up our perception, allowing us to see and experience more of reality around us, while serotonin does its opposite. It closes our perception down. It numbs us to reality. Hmm. Does that does that make sense? Well, you're saying it's apathetic in nature. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm the just numbing. saying the dopamine kind of opens us up. Yes. And it antagonizes, like LSD, it antagonizes serotonin, makes it go down, and that opens our perception. And so the corollary is that serotonin closes our perception down. It kind of numbs us to the to the details of life. We right. see less. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Okay. Now, this kind of puts dopamine in the good guy camp and serotonin in the bad guy camp mm-hmm. a little bit, but there is some nuance there. If serotonin closes down your perception to problems that you cannot solve, you know, you can then focus on problems you can solve and your life will improve, makes probably. total sense. Yeah. Now, if dopamine opens your perception up to parts of reality that are horrible, that you can't do anything about, you could <laughs> you could really mess yourself up. Yeah, that wouldn't be good for me. Yeah, which is why SSRIs are kind of like a coin flip. Yes. Yeah. It makes sense. But serotonin has some other drawbacks that you should probably know about. I have a feeling you're going to tell me what they are. And the science is very clear on these. So serotonin will increase salivary cortisol levels and slow down energy production in your body. Now, this is an adaptive response, like we mentioned, and that makes sense in the short term when responding to learned helplessness. You know, your body's saying, stop throwing your energy away, trying to avoid, you know, the stress that you can't avoid. But if that state becomes long-term, you can really run into problems. And we've discussed this in other podcasts that, you know, long-term exposure to higher cortisol levels is like a big no-no. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want that. It increases your chance of heart disease, uh, diabetes, mental problems, a lot of stuff. Okay. Now, most SSRIs are taken long-term. Uh, there are people who have been, you know, downing SSRIs for years. And therefore, they're upping their cortisol levels basically the whole time. Just increasingly getting higher? No, just they're just living them. in a high cortisol state. You gotcha. know, your body wants a certain amount of cortisol. It doesn't want zero cortisol. That's bad, but it wants a certain amount. But if you're living in a high cortisol state, you know, that's not great. Yes. And not only that, as you get older, it's it's kind of harder for your body to get out of a cortisol-based kind of catabolic metabolism yeah. and back into like a thyroid-based anabolic metabolism. Ray P kind of talks about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me, and this is just my anecdotal interpretation of this data that if you do decide to take an SSRI, you need to be in some type of therapy, meaning behavioral therapy to work through your fears or assertiveness training or just just something to move your life forward 
where you're solving problems and you're becoming better at solving problems in your life. It's not just a band-aid at that point where you're just trying to plug up the problem without facing it. Totally. Like the fact that doctors, you can go to a doctor's office and just say, I feel glum and get a prescription and go on your merry way. Like that seems like a total setup for failure. Yeah. Well, it's like anything else pharmaceutical in nature sometimes. I mean, you got people taking extreme cancer drugs, yet they haven't been told to remove anything from their diet that could be causing additional problems. Mm, so you're not, you're not dealing with the issue, the core issue anyways. Yeah, definitely. It, it just seems like a setup for failure. If you are on these SSRIs long-term, your ability to respond to life will get worse as time goes on. The, the high cortisol levels will, over time, erode your metabolism and your ability to generate energy. And therefore, your ability to solve the natural problems that arise in everybody's life, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll just go down. So in a way, you're kind of burying yourself deeper in a hole. Yep. And this is my opinion, uh, but the correct use of SSRIs is fast. You know, get in, get out. You take them to relieve yourself of maybe some massive burdens that you may be under, and then you get working fast on sol solving some of those burdens in a healthy way. But... What happens if you've been on SSRIs for a long time? You know, what can you do? Exactly. Well, this is just like my armchair doctoring, but you could try some type of dopamine agonist short term in the hopes that you would be snapped out of it. And there's there's natural ones out there. There's uh, dopamine uppers like Macuna Bean. Uh, that's one that's, you know, we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. It has L-DOPA naturally occurring in it. You get some LSD if you want to go that route, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, we talked about that a bit in the dopamine <laughs> episode. You have to be careful with dopamine agonists. They're very addictive and, you know, you'd only want to use them short term. Okay. Now, in that process, you will also be kind of taking on some of the problems that serotonin was suppressing. So there's this aspect of courage to all this if you, if you do decide to take more responsibility and, and go that route. And there's a lot of natural alternatives to SSRIs. For example, saffron extract which will increase not only serotonin, but also dopamine and norepinephrine. Norep mm -hmm. uh, methylene blue is a MAO inhibitor and will do the same. You could also try uh, B vitamins, adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, rhodiola, and eleuthero. So there's, there's just a lot of options to try that would be alternatives. To see what fits with your body chemistry. Exactly. Supplements like 5-HTP and to a lesser extent tryptophan are direct precursors to serotonin. So they're so similar to SSRIs that I would probably avoid them in preference to the natural alternatives that increase all your neurotransmitters. Right. I'd also lump St. John's wort into that camp as well and avoid it. Okay. So to sum everything up, serotonin, it's not the happy hormone slash amine. It's the apathy hormone slash amine. Apathy definitely has its advantages at times. <laughs> <laughs> SSRIs, they're basically a flip of the coin on whether they help you or not. They, they increase cortisol, so uh, being on them long-term is, is really a fool's game, I think, and it's going to bury you deeper the longer you are exposed to them. Okay. If you do want to learn more about serotonin, I really recommend Ray Pete's couple articles on the subject, which are linked in the show notes. Uh, he's very polarizing on it, and, and he paints it in a very negative light, but you will get a handle on what serotonin is for as far as depression goes. Okay. And it definitely has some some biological purposes, but increasing it is, is not a good idea, probably. Yeah, that's that's the takeaway here. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think of that? Uh, right now, I mean, obviously, I'm, that's not an avenue I want to 
go down uh, after hearing all this sort of thing, but it, it's changed my opinion as to what serotonin is and what it does in the body too. Yeah. Do, do you hear a lot of people in the store talk about, oh, it's the happy hormone or, or, I mean, do people come in and is that their thought or? I've heard a lot of questions at that point. It's not that I hear people support that in the store, but I think that that's the common misconception that serotonin is directly related to happiness or, um, you know, mood uplift type scenarios. So, um, yeah. That's the thought process, I think, you know, so I have not given it as much thought, obviously, as we've had and put into it tonight as what you put together. So this has been very eye opening. Did it did it make sense, the whole motivation aspect and the learned helplessness aspect? Because I kind of went through that fast. No, it totally that that made more sense than anything. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Putting it in perspective, especially with what I'm dealing with. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, this was a great week for for you to go into serotonin and dopamine again, so. Sweet, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, I'm going to try and get a a guy on who I know just came out with a supplement that increases dopamine in your brain, and I think he's he's a naturopath, so he might know uh, some interesting things about neurochemicals in general, so. We'll see if I can get that guy That'd on be here. Great. And the, the other guy, the Eric Maddox, I will be getting on at the end of this month. That will be exciting. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, he's going to talk a, a bit about interrogation and all that stuff. It might be a little off topic, but it's a good story. So we'll get to that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening to Quacks and uh, go to quackspodcast.com if you want to see some recommended products under our recommended tab. And uh, shoot us an email if you are curious about something and want us to cover a certain subject. We really appreciate you guys listening and sharing. The, the podcast is growing, and it just grows faster the more we get help in sharing it. Totally. That's that's the big thing that you could do if you enjoyed it. If you get some value from it, please give it a, give us a share or a like or whatever. And always give us your feedback, too. Like, what, like Lucas was saying, what kind of things do you want to see on the show or what things can we do better? You know, anything that you want to share with us, the kinds of things that that you would like to see in the Quacks podcast, please feel free to do so. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Be well. Be well.